Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode six of In Transition, the podcast that explores the practice of content marketing in government. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Content marketing is a strategic business process that involves the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content designed to meet the needs of a specified audience in order to achieve a desired citizen or stakeholder action. So to today's guest, I will declare an interest up front. He is an old friend of mine, and indeed, he's kind enough to let me stay in his holiday house on the New South Wales South Coast in Australia every year. He's also one of the country's longest-serving political journalists, having worked as a senior correspondent in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery for News Limited and the Australian newspaper. He's also an author of a best-selling political thriller, The Marmalade Files, which is soon to be turned into a film, and he is the serving Senior Vice President of the National Press Club in Canberra. His name is Steve Lewis. He's also now a consultant for Newgate Communication, and he joins me now. Steve Lewis, thanks very much for being in transition. David, great to be here. Fantastic. Listen, I've invited you along today because... Our audience of government communicators, uh, content marketers really, are always intrigued with the media as a primary channel to reach the public. What's your view of the current influence of the media on government communication? Media have always been uh, very influential in terms of uh, government communications. Uh, The media is changing. We've seen uh, enormous change in the media, uh, in the Canberra Press Gallery. Uh, What what that means is that we've seen a number of specialist uh, online reporters, people who are working in the digital media, uh, less people working in the so-called old media. Uh, It means that the the days of getting in the newsroom at 10am or 11am or even later are long gone. We've seen the rise of 24-7 social media and all that's had a uh, had an enormous uh, impact on the media landscape but I think the fundamentals um, uh, still account for an enormous amount that uh, governments and indeed oppositions and crossbench senators rely upon the media as a whole uh, to get that message out, to disseminate the message. I mean, just today we've seen uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Tony Abbott, on Channel 9 uh, this morning on the the high-rating Today show, and uh, I heard uh, Joe Hockey uh, being interviewed by Fran Kelly on the ABC. So, yeah, traditional media, old media if you want to call it that, but they're still very much the very important forums that politicians will use to get the message out. And it's no different whether you're the Prime Minister uh, of Australia or whether you're uh, working in a communication space in an outlying uh, smaller agency in the Commonwealth bureaucracy. You are relying, of course, on media in all its forms to get that message out. The trick is, of course, is to be able to communicate uh, sensibly, wisely, uh, properly that particular message. And I think that's, uh, gee, that's a debate, mate, that would take uh, hours to have. Well, we've got plenty of time, so let's see how we go. But is that influence diminishing? Yeah, look, it's the $64 question. Um, Has social media, for instance, taken over as a more influential platform, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, than, say, appearing on Channel 9 or going on Fran Kelly's show? Um, I would argue that while social media is very influential, and I'm certainly not for one moment um, downplaying 
Twitter or Facebook or the use of those particular vehicles. Um, I still think that the traditional media is probably, uh, is, not probably, but is the vehicle that politicians, particularly senior politicians, use to try and uh, influence public opinion and, and particularly to set the agenda, to, to set the agenda for, for the day or for the period um, with particular messages. Uh, Twitter and Facebook are very, very important and influential and help disseminate that particular message, particular, particularly, I guess, to younger audiences and audiences that might not be listening to Fran Kelly at 7.10am in the morning. But uh, I still think the traditional media, um, radio, television and the newspapers... Uh, particularly with this government, the News Limited newspapers, be it the Australian or the Daily Telegraph, um, are still the the vehicles by which governments uh, rely upon to influence public opinion. I'll, I'll give you one example, if I may. Um, my old uh, stable, uh, the Daily Telegraph, I worked for the telly for um, a number of years. Um, they decided, Paul Whitaker, the editor, decided a year, two years ago, that he was going to back a second airport for Sydney. And we saw the government under Tony Abbott announce a second airport for Sydney uh, earlier this year. Earlier this year. Now, I declare an interest. Um, we are working with Sydney Airport, which, of course, <laughs> has a first right of refusal. But putting all that to one side, um, I don't think we'd have a, a second airport being proposed for Western Sydney unless the Daily Telegraph got in behind and anyone can go and have a look at the campaign they ran and are running for a second airport. They're running competitions now on what the name should be. That second airport would not have occurred if the Telegraph had not decided, uh, uh, had decided not to uh, to support that. Um, so there's an example where All right. a, an old-fashioned newspaper has set the agenda and the government's responded by announcing a second airport, which you and I know has been floating around in the political ether for what? Three, four, five, bloody decades. A long time. A long time. But let me challenge you with um, the words and the sentiment expressed by the Victorian Labor Party's marginal seats campaigner at the recent state election in Victoria, where he said that their strategy was to work face-to-face on the ground with campaigners, meeting with people, going directly to those whose vote counted, and they are the swinging voters in the marginal electorates. And he said, we didn't want to win the day as far as the media was concerned, and we didn't care that the major newspapers editorialised against us because we communicated face-to-face with those that mattered. So they, in fact, decided that they were going to go in the opposite direction and were able to run what was effectively a content marketing campaign to get the result and win the election. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, I thought it was very interesting. And the Victorian election, uh, the result that, that went Labor's way on the weekend, uh, will it be seen as a watershed in Australian politics uh, in terms of elections that uh, where, where the tactics by the winning side were, were different to, to that that's been used in the past? I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on that election. But you're right. I do note that uh, The Age and The Herald Sun both editorialised in favour of Dennis Napthine being re-elected. It didn't work. I mean, yeah, what does that tell you? It tells you that people don't read editorials or don't take much notice of editorials uh, at the very least. But the editorials really are a summation of the, an editorial line that you've seen published over yeah. you know, throughout the election. They're not just pulled out of nowhere. No, look, that's right. That's right. And I'm not trying to uh, diminish or, or play down uh, the, the campaign strategy that Labor adopted. I don't know enough about it. I don't know how much they relied upon digital media, um, uh, social media 
to win well, in those I think a lot modes. of it was face-to-face. I think they used yeah, you know, but that's, people on the yeah. ground talking to people, yeah. clearly identifying that's using... that's the best media, isn't it? I mean, that's, oh, it the best, is. that's the best media. I mean, if you can go out and speak face-to-face to people and and, and win, the, win the, uh, the political debate, win their vote, I mean, that's what it's... It's all about at the end of the day. It's about winning their vote. Fantastic. And they put a lot of resources. You know, I know the unions put a lot of resources into getting people out in the field to say, vote one Labor, get rid of this Naphthine government. They're a, they're a, a state facsimile of uh, the Abbott government, etc., etc. Now, I'm sure in the wash-up uh, there'll be some serious analysis and I'm sure in the wash-up there will be a considered view that that played an important role. But, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, it wouldn't be the first election where newspapers newspapers have editorialised for one party and they haven't won. So I'm not sure how much that tells us about the influence of you know, traditional media. Um, you know, that said, I'm not trying to suggest that traditional media has the same level of influence that it had 30, 20, 10 years ago. I, I accept the landscape is changing and I accept that uh, more and more, particularly younger people, are less and less switching on to, you know, reading newspapers or uh, or reading um, or, or watching uh, watching television, traditional television. I mean, they're you know they're, they're watching and getting their 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 news and their information through their their PDAs and their iPhones and and the rest of it. They're streaming stuff through Netflix. They're getting Game of Thrones before it even arrives in Australia. They're relying less on the sort of traditional media. You know, the the free to wear stations that were so dominant for so long are losing. They're uh, are losing their clout. There's no doubt about that. So, what about outside of the you know the political context of an election, where a government is seeking to explain to people uh, the benefits of their programs and why they have taken certain decisions? If that is in fact the changing landscape in terms of technology and the way content is created, distributed, and consumed, what then, in your view, is the opportunity for government communication organisations, departments, divisions? to take advantage of that so as that they can, in fact, go direct to citizens to explain the policies of the government of the day? Yeah, that's a very good uh, question and, and a very important issue. Um, and and we, are, we are seeing, I think, uh, more and more um, government agencies right across the, the sphere, uh, particularly at a federal level, and that's where my expertise is. It's not so much at a state level. But we're seeing some, uh, I think, innovative use of... Um, of, of podcasts, of um, of, uh, of web-based uh, broadcasts where people are getting messages out, um, organisations like NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, um, it's using some very uh, innovative uses of, uh, of the web to get the messages out to stakeholders, to people who may be um, uh, recipients or beneficiaries, if you like, of NDIS services. I've seen some really uh, good use of uh, the web there. We're seeing some of the biggest government agencies uh, across the board, uh, particularly those that have got a, a strong interaction with the public, uh, uh, reach out to stakeholders, whether it's the tax office or... Uh, uh, Centrelink or other other uh, big government agencies um, using digital media, online services to to reach out and and put you know the CEO or key players there to deliver these particular messages. So you know I, I think that is certainly uh, the case that we're seeing a much more um, much more uh, uh, important or, or appropriate use 
of those services, particularly the web and, and you know, digitisation uh, has allowed us to basically provide that uh, particular service. And that's a, that's a great thing. And it's more, yeah, it's probably, uh, it's probably far more interactive and it's probably uh, delivering to people the sorts of services and interaction, importantly, that they want. You know, I guess the downside is that um, you know, a lot of people like to still have that, that face-to-face contact, particularly if they've got a problem with their welfare payments or their tax or their, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, uh, I mean, I know the tax office, for instance, um, are now offering um, a service to small business where you can, you can log on and, and go, go into the tax office portal and find out, uh, you know, if you've got particular issues... You're a small business. You're running a corner shop. You're working, you know. You're working all day. You close up the shop. You're trying to do your accounts at eight o'clock at night. You got a you've got a, a question for the tax office. Well, you know, several years ago you wouldn't have had any luck, but now there's I know a small business service available that allows you access to to that, and that's you know I guess a, a sensible use of that uh, that web based service that uh, the tax office has put in place. But if I could draw then perhaps on your uh, long experience as a as a journalist, as a, as a content creator, what would your advice be to those government communicators who are now going to be expected yeah. um, to create useful, relevant, valuable content? Yeah. What's the secret? What's the secret to making really good content? Yeah, it's a great question. The, from a journalist's point of view, you're always wanting to, um, yeah, you're always wanting to uh, tell... Uh, a story that's you know a bold story. You're wanting it. To, you're wanting cut through. You're wanting cut through. So whether you're trying to put out a message on behalf of a department, on behalf of a minister, on behalf of some particular agency, um, you, you know you want cut through. So how do you achieve that? I mean that's that's yeah, a sixty-four dollar question. I mean um, I, I would imagine there's a lot of former journalists who are who are around the place now working in government agencies. I know there are, and you know my message to them would be, you got to really think about. The message you're trying to send out, you got to, you've got to, you have to recognise that um, that journalists are pressed for time more than ever. They don't have the luxury of getting a story and being able to, you know, spend all day on it basically because of the demands of the job. What does that mean? It means that basically, uh, I think it puts greater demand on those working government agencies to ensure that the message has got as much cut through um, as possible. It means also, you know, it, it's the age-old. Um, balance I guess of wanting to be strategic and make sure that you just don't put out messages on everything that's going on but you're far more strategic and you might say you might hold back on certain messages because they're not really that important you know in other words go for quality rather than quantity but make sure when you've got that message prepared to you know you've got a message that you want to deliver make it as you know make it as cut through as possible and I guess you know Put yourself in the in the uh, shoes of the journalist who's receiving that to say, is there anything in there that's going to seriously tweak their interest, or is it a bit bland, a bit, you know, a sort of thing that you could hold back? Are you doing it just to get your you know your KPIs up, or you're doing it because there's a significant message in there that needs to be widely disseminated? But perhaps on what I'm asking really is not so much pitching that story to the media, which remains as important, but I'm talking about creating that story and going direct to your audience. So is there a rule of thumb that you used to follow as a journalist about what are the things that needed to be in the story to really pass your test before you were happy enough to send it on to the sub-editors? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, look, I <laughs> I did... I mean, a lot of the stories that I did when I was working, um, 
over what 20 something years in the Presco, a lot of that was, you know, I guess, more investigative stuff. So I was basically trying to delve, delve beneath the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the front of house sort of PR machine and actually try and sort of dip into it. Um, so I, I was probably fairly atypical because I don't think there are many journalists certainly nowadays, who are doing that investigative work. And, you know, the Commonwealth, which spends, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars each year, there aren't many journalists who got the... Um, uh, who are prepared to, you know, spend the time, who are determined enough, persistent enough and know where to look to pursue those sorts of stories. So, I mean, that makes it that makes it a bit of a challenge. Um, yeah, but what, you know, there's everything... I mean, journalists want good stories that they know they're going to be able to sell to their news desk. So what are you looking for? You're wanting uh, you're wanting stories that have some bite. You're wanting stories that have um, you, you're always after an exclusive. I mean, that's the you know you look at the Australian newspaper. I mean, most days it's got five exclusives on the front page. How many of those are legitimate exclusives? Another question. But as a journal, you're always wanting to break stories, right? You're always wanting to get stories that other people don't have. Um, from that means from a government communications point of view, if you've got a if you've got a big story or a strategic story, it may make better sense for you to say, I'm going to give this story to a financial review, give it to you know, Phil Curry as an exclusive because I know that he's more likely than push for that to be on the front page. If I give it out to everybody, everyone's going to look at it and go, well, you know, it's a general press release. It's going to sit on, you know, it's, it's going to end up on page six or page eight sort of thing. So, you know, from a journalist's point of view, you're looking for exclusives. You're looking for stories that you know are going to resonate. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you're also looking for just a quirky sort of story. I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's nothing better than getting a nice quirky, even a, you know, a story that's nice human interest or a story that's got a, a positive, a positive angle to it. I mean, you know, I know there's a bit of a cliche that journalists only look for sort of scandal and for, you know, they're always looking to sort of demonise governments and those in authority and and that um, they should be holding those people to account. But, you know, good journalists are also looking for the quirky story, the, the, the bit of colour and movement and something maybe even a bit of human interest uh, as well because those stories are often are the ones that have as much resonance as your big investigative breakthrough. What about the increasing importance of visual content, be it on, uh, you know, a social yeah. channel or um, even in a you know, video context? Yeah. Uh, at an event, how you know, there's many, many ways that we can receive visual content. What's your views about the emerging importance of making sure that you're supporting your story with the uh, appropriate imagery? Yeah. Uh, well, there's no doubt that uh, uh, video imagery uh, has emerged over the last number of years, small number of years, as a very important uh, tool and a very important component of the the media offering, so you now have um, specialised video journalists working, say, in the Canberra Press Gallery, uh, working in in the the big media houses in Sydney and Melbourne. Whereas several years ago, you didn't have that. Um, several years ago, uh, say, print journalists might have a, a bit of a side interest in video and might sort of do a bit of bit of video on the side. But you now have specialist uh, video uh, camera, sorry, video journalists. So it is really important. Um, is it? I'm not sure that it's emerged to the extent that I thought it might have, as uh, as dominant as I thought several years ago it might emerge. In other words, it, it seems to me that uh, print uh, is still very much, um, you know, in terms of the 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 uh, the the 
the newspapers or the news outlets that I read, and I read a lot of the news outlets. I read, you know, News Limited, uh, Fairfax, the ABC. Uh, I'll read uh, on a regular basis The Guardian. And I'll read more recent um, uh, portals like uh, uh, The New Daily, which I do some writing for, um, uh, you know, Crikey, some of those other portals. And I'm not sure that video has become as dominant or influential in mm. telling of a story as I thought it might be. Uh, I'm not sure whether or not I'm just. What's the reason for that? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's it, a really interesting point. I mean, I mean, I know. I mean, I know. Uh, Is it because it's complicated? It's complicated. It's expensive. Um, it's difficult to do. Um, I mean, I know News Limited uh, had uh, a small army of video journalists several years ago. I'm not sure that small army of video journalists are still in existence. It's a platoon. Yeah, yeah, or it might be a plot, and they might have uh, they might have hit hamburger. No, I'm 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 not sure that there's that many left. Um, I mean, I know you know my daughter uh, Rosie was uh, working as a video journalist. She worked at the Australian and at News Limited in Sydney, and when she joined, there was a small team, and ended up she was the last remaining video journalist. She's now working in Canberra in print, right? She's but she's got all those video skills. I'm not downplaying the importance of video. I think video. Video can tell a story like nothing else. And, you know, video, I, I love, and as can a good photograph. I mean, it can tell a story much better than, than, than words can often. Um, I'm not sure what the, what the reason is. You know, one of the things we have seen is the rise of social media and so many websites, you know, where, um, and we've seen the rise of citizen journalists where people can go out and just before I came here, I don't know why, but I was looking at a, uh, a silly little video of a, of, a, of a brown snake and an old bloke came by and sort of kicked it in the head a few times. And it was just this quirky video and it was on one of the uh, one of the mainstream websites. It just took my fancy, right? And I was thinking, someone's taken that and they've sent it in and it's now up on a website. Citizen journalist is becoming uh, very important, some might say very powerful. Uh, it means that... It means that those in authority uh, are under more scrutiny than ever before, but I'm not sure that the professional journalist is putting down the pen and picking up the video camera to the extent that I thought that might occur several years ago. Maybe I'm wrong, but, um, you know, and I haven't worked in a newsroom full-time for a year or so, but my sense is when I walk around the press gallery at least, there's not the number of people with video cameras doing the work that I thought there might have been. As we look to the future, uh, things are changing quickly uh, and, you know, the rise of the citizen journalists, the opportunity for everyone to actually be a publisher now. Uh, where do you see it changing, particularly for those people who are working in government communications? Where are the opportunities for them to be more effective in their work on a daily basis and where do you think the industry more more broadly is is going in the next, you know, Two to three years. Yeah, I mean that's a really, really good question. Well, look, I think that <clears throat> as as we've been talking a bit about this, but I think um, if I was working in government communications, um, I'd be obviously utilising all the latest technologies. Um, I'd be looking to um, I'd be looking for those opportunities to tell uh, a story about the the work that the agency does in a more innovative way. Um, I, I think and a bolder the, way, but you know, it, was a good in, word. it was a word that you used earlier to be a bit braver, to be a well, bit it's bolder. Cut through. It's cut through. It's cut through. I mean, there's. I guess there's two aspects to it. One is, um, you know, government agencies have to provide advice, 
you know, the big agencies in social uh, welfare and in health and those sorts of areas, I mean, they have to provide advice to people on mass... You know, you look at some of these government websites, I mean, they're massive and they've got they've got all these sort of sub-portals and they've, they're providing huge... Uh, huge amounts of information, and most of it is a fairly straightforward. You you click on a website, you go, you know, you go to a drop down menu, you go there, and you go to the particular area you're interested in. But as I said, I, I mean, I'd be, um, uh, you know, NDIS or those agencies that are being more creative or more innovative, and perhaps being a bit more cut through, are basically, you know, relying on video and new technologies to tell the story. And um, I suspect, without having any, any direct knowledge that they're probably getting a better results they're probably getting those messages out you know it, it is about there's so much information available there is just there's more information than than ever before right and so many different forms and it makes it harder to get that message through to get that cut through message so increasingly you have to basically be you know my advice would be for everyone basically they've got to really be strategic you've got to be very strategic You've got to aim for the cut through. You've got to aim to be bold. You've got to aim to be innovative. And it will mean, you know, if your KPI is just putting out five press releases a day in whatever form, that to me is bad communications. Because I can guarantee you 98% of the time those press releases will will end up, uh, the journals will get it in their email, their intro, and they'll just flick it straight to, uh, to the trash bin, right? You've got to be far more strategic because there is information overload. But I think it's a great opportunity um, for government communicators... Um, who want to get their messages out to use the technologies to be, you know, to be innovative in the in the way they use it. I, I would have thought, I would have thought there's great opportunities. How do they get the buy-in of their minister, who perhaps may not be as well versed or yeah. understanding of the new technologies? Yeah, that's and a hard... likes the press release. Sure. Yeah. Well, look, that's that's, uh, and I'm sure that uh, that would be the. Uh, the daily frustration that many government communicators would have that they might come up with what they think is a great press release or a great, you know, package and they'll find that their minister uh, might not be uh, of the same mind or that their media advisor might not be of the same mind and unfortunately all that good hard work goes to nothing, goes to waste. Um, how do you get your minister um, engaged? Uh, that's, a, that's a really tough one. It depends on the minister but, you know, my message would be you've got to sell the argument you've got yeah and let's face it I mean this government probably needs a bit of a hand when it comes to communicating their message uh, but my argument would be that uh, good use of um, communications um, can work very much in the minister's favor um, that it might be uh, a program or a scheme or an announcement that may not even directly involve the minister um, or the minister may not have a direct hands-on role but uh, if it reflects well on the on the department, the agency, and on the government more broadly, then it's got to be a good thing. But it could go wrong. Yeah, it's it, risky. It, well, it we could, can't control it. It, it. Absolutely, and I mean that's one of the I guess that's one of the dynamics that we're seeing more and more that uh, uh, yeah, people people are risk averse, ministers are risk averse, advisors are risk averse, and they're looking for the downside. So how do you overcome that? I mean, how do you basically try and try and avoid uh, everything you you create and and package beautifully, being dumped because the minister says, "No, look, you know, it's it's very pretty, but I'm not gonna not gonna stand out there like a shag on a rock. I'm gonna be crucified by the telly or uh, or the project or or whatever for looking like a, an idiot." So, yeah, I, I I don't quite know the answer to it. It's it's a real tough one. We don't have um, 
One of the things that's occurred with the rise of social media and with the rise of citizen journalism is that while there's more information than ever, um, it probably has led to people being more, in some cases, risk-averse. Um, if I'm not, a, I'm not a politician. I've never been a politician or worked for a politician, but I know many of them, know many of them very well. And, I mean, they are under scrutiny 24-7. And um, you look back at footage of, you know, wistfully of people like Bob Hawke and, and Gough Whitlam and even going right back to, say, someone like Menzies, and you look at the way they interacted with the public and some of their, their commentary, you know, some of Keating's famous put-downs and that, it's harder and harder and harder, I think, to get to... to a, to do that nowadays because if I was a politician, I'd be worried that everything, every single thing I said would end up on YouTube. I'll just give you one example. Uh, a couple of years ago at the press club, we wanted to get... Um, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to have a really good fun night. We wanted to attract politicians and journos and staffers. So we thought, let's put on some karaoke. Harmless fun. Karaoke. And a group of quite senior parliamentarians from Labor, and at that time Labor were in government, turned up. I thought, this is fantastic. This is going to go down really well. And a meatloaf song came up. They got on the dance floor to have a sing. As soon as they got up, there was one particular person who was going to build it out. The iPhones got up like that. Everyone was going to YouTube it. And this person said, no, 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 I'm not going to be involved. And I thought, we've created a rod for our our own back. We were trying to have some fun. (laughs) And all of a sudden, social media, citizen journalism thought, "Uh uh-uh. We're going to put this up on YouTube. And, and I remember one person who was from the other side of politics had their iPhone up. And I, I, you know, I just knew that they'd put that up on YouTube any second. So, you know, I thought, what, what a shame that here we are trying to do something, have some fun. And the politician didn't, uh, who wanted to have a sing but wasn't prepared to have something that could have been embarrassing, perhaps even damaging to them, appear on YouTube five minutes later. So, you know, th- there's a great example where technology allows you to do things you've never done before. It allows you to um, uh, be a, a journalist at the press club at, you know, 10 o'clock at night or, you know, wherever you, wherever you want to be. But at the same time, it's made the politicians, the elected representatives, more risk-averse because they know that everything they, everything they say, everything they do is likely to end up on social media in one form or another. Someone's going to tweet it, someone's going to put it up on Facebook, someone's going to put it up on YouTube... I think that's a great shame. I don't know what the answer is, mate, because mm. it's liberating in one sense, but it's also constraining in another. Interesting. Uh, it's certainly very interesting observations there for you from you. But uh, just a final question before we go. You've been around for a while. Do you Thanks, look mate. forward? That's, uh, that's no, generous of you. <laughs> but as you look forward, do you look forward with apprehension? And anxiety, or do you look forward with enthusiasm and, you know, this is going to be great, the, the, the future of communication? Well, look, I'm a glass half full type, so I've always been pretty bubbly and enthusiastic about the future, even as I was, uh, you know, even when I've been, um, uh, no, not dismissed, I shouldn't say that, but, uh, you know, I've always been pretty enthusiastic about the future, and I think there's great opportunities, I really do, no matter what field of communications you're in, whether you're in, you know, whether you're David Pembroke running a content group, whether you're uh, you know, working for companies like Newgate Communications, and we're, we're embracing all the technology, or whether you're a journo up on the hill uh, treading the boards and basically uh, trying to get the yarns out of, uh, you know, disaffected backbenchers. I, I think there's great opportunities, uh, um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic. Um, 
I think people have, have to understand what technology can do for you. You have to also understand, particularly government communicators, have to understand that their ministers, the elected representatives uh, who they who they uh, work for um, are under greater pressure than ever because of the rise of social media. And I guess that needs to be reflected in their in their thinking. They need to be very strategic in terms of the way they develop content. And as you know, as you mentioned before, you know, I use the word cut through. Um, there's no point to me putting out something that's bland and's got no cut through, because it's just kind of there's so much information out there that it's just not going to get any. Uh, it, it's not going to get any sort of real coverage. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very enthusiastic. I think there's a I think there's a great future. I think journalism uh, has a strong future, notwithstanding. We are seeing the demise or we're seeing the decline of traditional media and we're seeing many, many fine journalists at the ABC as we speak who are basically facing redundancy. And I think it's a great shame. I think it's a great shame and I, you know, I feel very, very sorry for those 400 or so ABC journalists who are going to go. But that said, a lot of those people will get jobs. Um, they'll go out, they'll get jobs in, in freelance, they'll get jobs working in new media, they'll get jobs elsewhere because there are some great little innovative platforms and companies that are emerging. Um, Many of them will probably end up working in government communications, doing you know, PR or media for government agencies or for ministers or for you know other sections of government. You know, it, it's going to. There's always going to be a demand. There's always going to be a need for people who are good communicators. You've got good cut through who can who can uh, distill a message. Who can basically work with a complicated message and and make it. Um, uh, you know, easily digestible by Mr and Mrs Punter. You know, if you've got that ability, you're going to get a job no matter where. Steve Lewis, thanks very much for joining us on The Change. It's been a real pleasure and good luck in the future. Thanks very much, David. I've uh, really enjoyed it. So there you go, a discussion with Steve Lewis. What I took out of that was that times are changing and that there are huge opportunities for all of us in government to create useful, relevant and valuable content to go direct to audiences and use the many channels that are in place in order for you to get to that audience that are aggregating the content that they're looking for. You have to be very thoughtful about what the right channel is. You don't have to be in every channel. You just have to be in the right channel. And you also have to measure and evaluate the effectiveness of your efforts and always, always tie these content marketing efforts to the corporate objective. Nothing should happen unless it's driving back towards the accomplishment of a corporate objective. The media remains a key and influential channel to reach vast numbers of people, but I also think it's important to remember that often we are not trying to reach everybody. Often in government, our targets are very narrow. They're very niche. So perhaps the media is not always the right channel to use. That's something to keep in mind. Thanks again for joining me, and I'll speak to you next week. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. For more, visit us at intransitionpodcast.com.au. Thank you.